All right, welcome to the RSP cast. We have another version of Scout Talk with the illustrious Russ Landy. And uh, we are going to get a shot, a chance to continue a series that Russ initiated. I thought was just a, a, a fantastic idea. Um, and it was just to talk about evaluation mistakes, things that we've learned. And we're doing it by position. Um, two weeks ago, we did one on wide receivers, which was really well received and um, certainly something that we got a lot of great feedback from. So we thank you for that. Today, we're going to do one on running backs. Um, so, and before we get started, again, once, you know, it's that time of year. So I'll just mention as our little, as a little bit of a push here, the Rookie Scouting Portfolio publication is now available for pre-order for its April 1 download. The discount period ended last night. So for those of you perverse enough to tell me every year that you're waiting until you can pay full price for it, well, here you go. You can pre-order for full price. Thank you. I appreciate the the many of you who actually tell me that I'm crazy so that for doing a, a, a discount and even for not raising the price on what it is. So here's your chance now. You can do that. And if you want to pay me even more money, well, listen, I'm doing dynasty rankings with a, um, with, along with um, projections, two-year projections um, for, for all the dynasty players. It's a complete dynasty rankings list, and it's separate from what I do from the RSP. It's available for $24.95. The response to that has been fantastic as well. Um, so for, I, I guess this is for many of you saying I would pay double. Well, now you can if you decide that you want to do that. You'll get the fit, you, but you'll get more for your money in addition to that. Both things don't bleed over so you know if you want the answers to the test you can get the dynasty rankings and the two-year projections if you want the to understand why some of the the things that we you know we think about players you know well i put plenty of that with the rsp so you can get one for 21.95 one for 24.95 and like i say a percentage of 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 this every year goes to darkness to light which is an organization to prevent sexual abuse as well as to address it in communities to help train people to understand how to deal with it when it is reported um, so that the victims do not have to go through any type of compounding of victimization um, it's a great cause i've been giving to it since 2011 on behalf of rsp subscribers um, we've raised um, over forty-five thousand dollars for um, this organization since 2011, um, which has been fantastic. And so, you know, looking forward to another great year this year. And, uh, you know, that's the deal. So we'll get into the meat of the, of the show here. Now that we talked about, you know, getting the things that, how things work out, we're gonna get to talk about probably my favorite position and the one, Russ, I'll say immodestly, I think is my best one, but we'll show a lot of mistakes going through that. Cause like, you know, we have people who talk about and say, if you rated yourself on a, did a self-evaluation on like a scale of one to 10 and said one is like, I just need to get a new career. Like this is never going to work <laughs> out. And a 10 thinking that like, you're, you're like, you don't have, you, you have more to learn, but you feel like that you've figured this thing out. I'd say of, of all the positions running back would be the closest, would be the one I'm highest on for my own self-evaluation. And I'd probably give myself maybe a, a seven. Maybe a seven. Uh, on no, that. That, and that's, uh, I think, what it is for the really good evaluators. It's hard to get above a seven or eight. Yeah. Because yeah. you're going to miss. No matter what yeah. you do, you're going to miss. Yeah. And I just got to add on a side there. If people are willing to pay full price and they're going to wait for that, I'm thinking you ought to print out some hard copies and sign them and say, if they want to add an extra hundred bucks, <laughs> they need to sign the hard copy. I mean, hey, if they're willing to wait, why not throw that in there? You pay a hundred bucks, I'll travel up and have a beer with you. How about that? There you go. <laughs> After COVID, you know, yeah, right no doubt. now it's hard to get through with my face shield and my and, and the other stuff. I don't have all that outfitted, but... <laughs> but yeah, I'll tell you what, running back is tough because not only is it I think hard because the this the level of talent between the NFL and college is so different that the holes are so different, the speed of the game is so different. But also as the game has changed in the NFL where nobody's given a guy who's two hundred and twenty or thirty pounds thirty-five touches generally, except if you're Tennessee and Derrick Henry. So the value of certain types of running backs has decreased to where now you really have to look at it, at the, all the skills. You can't just have that one dominant power back and say, oh, he can carry it 30 times. Even if he's not a great receiver or a great pass blocker, he has a role. Well, not anymore. They have to be complete players. So I think you have to do a lot more studying now to be more consistent with your grades on running backs. Yes, absolutely, because it has evolved. It was a point, like you said, where you can get a guy who was – 
big, strong, and fast, and the way that they played football, they just wore people down. And so that's why oftentimes, you know, people watch a player like Nick Chubb right now and they get upset because they're like he's splitting time with Kareem Hunt and fans or fantasy players look at that and go, well, when's he going to get his carries? And it's like, well, he will. They're going to be patient with it. And by the fourth quarter, no team's going to want to hit him because he's already punished them. It's like A.J. Dillon the other night. We watched A.J. Dillon and I, and I finally got a chance to watch that game and Early on, he realized he played like he was a big back. He was it's in the snow. He didn't try to get too cute with it. He went downhill. He broke tackles. He ran through guys. He dragged folks around. Then by the end of the game, well, the Packers were opening nice creases. And then you didn't see guys like charging headlong from the defense to try and get into some of those creases as much with as much enthusiasm as they were early on in that game. And basically, A.J. Dillon is breaking off runs of 7 to 10 yards a clip because of the fact that he already wore them out by playing hard early and the and the Packers getting into a groove in the second half uh, of that game or later in that game in terms of watching it because you know from that perspective and you just don't see that as often anymore and you got guys like Alvin Kamara like I'll start yep. and just say Alvin Kamara is probably the biggest miss I had for two reasons one is that I really didn't think he was great after contact and it was different types of contact that I saw that. I just saw lots of glancing shots, and I was like, great, he makes people miss in a spread offense. He's going to be a nice scat back, a nice satellite back, if he can hold on to the football and if he makes more mature decisions. But I'm not sure he can make great decisions right off the bat um, with some of the things he did. But I harp too much on ball security. I harp too much on um, after-contact play, too, which also was like not only was it a new you know you could say it's a nuanced miss because of the fact you know the fact that maybe he generates he creates angles that limit contact or mitigate contact but to be honest like I already saw that what I didn't see was like the the absolute like I don't know like just special play like he some of the things that he does like I am forever I, I am completely mystified by Alvin Kamara and I love his game. Like I am the biggest fan of Alvin Kamara because of his contact balance. And I, I completely miss that. See, and for me, it's sort of unique because I didn't grade him because I was in the CFL at the time. And when he got in the league, a few of the guys that covered down there in the NFL, they said, you better peek at this kid, Kamara. He's, he's an intriguing guy. Not that he was going to come up CFL, but they said, you'd like him. And I remember his first year and peeking at some of the preseason stuff. And I was like, well, there is something to this kid. He's got a little bit of sort of electric juice to him. But I hadn't graded him in college, never saw him in college. So I can't really speak to that. But running backs can be so difficult because everybody wants the guy who can run over a tackler. But how often does that really play into a game where they have to break a true tackle? It's often can you keep your feet when a guy dives into your hips? Can you run through a guy who's reaching out with one arm? Well, yeah, that's valuable because that happens almost every play. Yeah. But the ability to break a true tackle, it really doesn't happen that often. And it's just the game's changed so much. I mean, and I think back, and you probably remember this kid, there was a kid named Andre Williams at a oh, Boston College. Yeah. Oh, yeah. If this was 25 years ago, I think Andre Williams would still be playing in the NFL and probably racking up 1,300, 1,400 yards a season because as a pure power runner who could break tackles, he was phenomenal. Yeah. But he was stiff, and he couldn't catch the ball, and he was useless in the passing game. So he was washed out of the NFL in two seconds flat. And that's a perfect example of just how the game has changed to where 25 years ago, Kamara would have been a third down back who maybe played 10 or 12 snaps a game, and Williams would have been the guy. Yeah. Now it's roles reversed. Guys like Williams can't even get in the league because they can't contribute out of the backfield. And a guy like Kamara is what we all want to see on a team. Yeah, and maybe even vision-wise, he's a little Williams was a bit of a dinosaur too yes. because he was good with one type, one really specific type of scheme whereas um you know Kamara was a guy who could do multiple things well. And and your point about tackling's a great one because that's something that I've noticed more as well and I had to learn which was there are different ways, there are different tackle types and you have to really kind of judge what yards after contact really means. So like for me, what's evolved, like from a practical standpoint of evaluating, and I've probably gone overboard, but that's okay. Cause I want to see how it bears out. It's <laughs> I used to just grade things like, okay, 
I define what power is in a number of different ways and what contact balance was in terms of direct contact where you like really took a guy head on and was, you know, one-on-one Oklahoma drill type of style stuff to indirect contact to me, which can be even more difficult to deal with. Like someone shooting for your legs and kind of side swiping you with the hit, you know, or hitting you in the side. Is it an upper body um, hit is it a lower body hit is it someone is it a defensive lineman or linebacker reaching for you with one hand and hoping they can hold on or are they actually getting to wrap you with both hands and secure it and hold on or do they get to hit you and wrap you and there's all those combinations in between so exactly when you start grading and tracking those things you start to realize pretty quickly like you just said that very rarely do you just watch someone a running back drop his pads and run over even a, a safety even a safety we're not even talking about a linebacker yeah. or a defensive tackle like that may happen once a season where they get a shot to do that and exactly. if, you know and and even then you have to look at even then you can like I talked to um oh, I can't remember his name I've had him on my podcast who's a terrific linebacker kind of tackling coach who played at Penn State and was a rugby guy um, talking about tackling and you know talking about angles of tackling where we looked at like say Sony Michelle in a pro game break a tackle and he was like that was a bad tackle like if you were really going to look at that the defender's already on his knees. He's already, you know, he's already given up his leverage. The way this has happened, of course he's going to break that tackle. It just looks more impressive than it really is. So even, he had like 29 points of what he looks at when he looks at a good tackle. So it was like, when you have someone breaking that down, it gives you the understanding to look at it and go and realize that, yeah, it's like you guys who, guys like Nick Chubb who break a lot of tackles are special because of that. But at the same time, even he is more of a guy that's either going to pull people, push a pile, or break an arm tackles that 90% of the people who can break arm tackles will also be able to do. And I got to tell you, I think the Browns are very unique because they have two guys who do that, but two very different style runners who break tackles. I mean, Chubb, when you watch them, Chubb is almost the more smooth guy who understands how to do it, knows how to break a tackle. And when I watch Hunt, he almost looks like a Ferrari with three wheels in that he's just going full speed, he's bouncing, he's getting knocked sideways, spinning, whatever it is, but he just never stops. It's, yeah. I mean, there are times where Chubb, I think, realizes, yeah, it's futile. I'm, I'm not getting this. Time to lay down, not going to risk fumbling. I don't think Hunt, I don't think that part of his brain exists. I think he is literally, until he is on the ground and they literally shove him through the grass, he keeps fighting for every yard. They're very different runners. Yeah. They, to me, that's part of what makes the running attack so good is you can't get a beat because just when you start getting comfortable, all right, this is how we're going to play and tackle Chubb, all of a sudden you have a whole different species in Hunt, and then when you get comfortable with him, we're going to put the other guy back in. Absolutely. And, it's fa- And that's a great point about him too because, yeah, Hunt has a ferocity – to which he runs. Exactly, that's a great word. Yeah, he is a ferocious runner, and it's one of those things where, yeah, it's and I think he appeals more, I think, to the naked eye because of that. Because I think as a fan, you look for players who have that like second, third, fourth, fifth effort, Marion Barber, Walter Payton. You know, I'm yep. giving you a wide range of players. I'm not comparing, obviously, uh, these yes. guys. But Hunt, Barber, and Payton, if you're going to say ferocity as runners, they all live in the same zip code, you know, uh, under ferocity, you know, and that's that's great. But, yeah, the tackling thing is a big deal, is understanding that no tackle, there's so many different forms of tackles, and some are way overvalued. If you are too, and that was for me early on, like I looked at guys and I was like, God, I love how they break tackles. But, and then there's a, also a part of it in terms of like ferocity where you go, maybe the level of ferocity that they have is too much, like too much for their size, too much for their style, too much for, you know, they lack economy with how they play. A guy that before I started scouting that I really loved, like the year before was Cadillac Williams. And Cadillac Williams was a guy who, I mean, like his, I was over the moon about that guy when I, before I started. Me too. I loved him. Oh yeah. Yeah. 
but he ran with, and, and he was not a big kid. No, but he ran like he was a big kid. Yes, he would attack contact. His legs, even when he would like get knocked off balance, his legs never stopped. It was he was unbelievable. But you make a great point because there are times where almost that that aggressive running style is almost detrimental because it puts the ball at risk and it puts the player at risk. Yeah, I mean a lot of unless you have that huge thick frame from top to bottom. If you're fighting over and over, you're going to get tackled in awkward positions. Your legs are going to get twisted. Your hips are going to get twisted. It's going to lead to injuries. So there are times we're learning, and that's where, to me, where Chubb reminds me a lot of Emmett Smith, is Chubb knows how to fight for the yards he has to get, but also understands there comes a point where for the six or eight inches I might gain with another 17 hours of fighting for this yard – it's not worth the risk of me getting snapped in half. I have to get up and, t- and take another handoff and next player, the next play after that, I got to be healthy. Right. And that's one of the things I see with Chubb is he, he's sort of like the Russell Wilson of running backs in that he's efficient, he's smart. And yeah, does he maybe leave three or four yards a game or one big play per game? Maybe because he might've been able to fight through and gain an extra yard, but he d- doesn't put himself in position to get broken. Yeah, and that is something that to me is so valuable with running backs. Yeah, exactly, because he'll wear you out too at that 100%. point. Yeah, so late in the game, he could possibly get that. But that's a good point about putting yourself in certain positions because there are certain running back styles that appeal to people, and they certainly appealed to me. That I've had to learn that you don't have running backs do have different styles. Like a guy like Adrian Peterson, when you watch him. He lives and dies with the jump stop and the jump cut. Like everything's very dramatic movement with him. And you see that if it's that it also means that his from run to run, he's a boom bust player. Um, you know, and as a result of that, there are players who, when they live and die by that, they can't access creases that more efficient backs with their footwork can. So you want to find backs really who, you know. For Adrian Peterson, if he didn't have the monster strength and the monster speed and acceleration that he had in the prime of his career, he probably wouldn't have been a special back because of the fact that his vision was okay. You know, it got better over time, um, but he didn't, he was, his athletic dominance helped him have author breakaway plays where he would have been more boom bust than he really even was at the NFL level. And you'll see that with players who lack either his level of vision or lack his level of quickness and strength, um, but have his kind of, you know, jump cutting style. And what happens there is if you're slower and have that, um, and you're a bigger guy with that, with that big body, you end up having a career kind of like a Jamal Anderson, who was a fantastic running back, but also blew out his knee you know, delivering these types of dynamic cuts where you put your joints at risk, like in the yep. ways that you describe, uh, or you're a guy who isn't as powerful, you know, doesn't have that compensatory power factor and or that compensatory speed factor, and you're just a guy who gets shut down a lot, who occasionally makes a big play because the maturity isn't there. A good example of that is Kenyon Drake, who's a guy who you know, has all the athletic ability you want, but he had to learn how to be more efficient with how he moved in order to find creases. And I think a guy that I, that, that leads into someone who I missed on was Lawrence Maroney. I really liked Lawrence Maroney, but I didn't understand all the nuances of how you run with certain blocking schemes. And I didn't understand that he didn't understand certain blocking schemes and that you really, as someone who evaluates, you really have to understand the difference between running behind zone and running behind gap um, as just a basic level. That's like just a basic level thing. If you can learn that you'll, you'll actually limit a lot of mistakes that I see a lot of people make. And I've certainly made in the past when I looked at guys like Maroney who couldn't run, who could run the gap scheme. I think it was the gap scheme that he was pretty good at. Um, just hitting the crease downhill, following his lead blocker, and then zone scheme where you have more multiple choices and you have to set things up. He was not good at having multiple answers at his disposal. No, he he was a guy who oftentimes you would see him hit blockers. Yeah. 
because he wasn't sure. And that to me is always one of the telltale signs, instinctive and vision-wise is, hey, everybody's going to hit a blocker at some point. That's just part of it. But are you running up into your blocker because you don't understand where it's going and you can't find a space? That to me is always one of the red flags when I'm watching running backs is guys who create contact with their own blockers, just the sirens start going off in my head. It's like, that's one of the things I saw with Melvin Gordon when he was coming out. Melvin is, to me, a dynamic player. When there's a crease and he can hit it, he can put a foot in the ground and explode through it, but he doesn't always see it. And so many times he's running and he's a very high runner and he hits the side of his blocker. And it's like, how does he not see that there's a hole there? And that's one of those things you learn the more you do this is when you start seeing running backs either hit blockers or almost like having to come to a full stop and then figure out where the hole is and then go back to find it. Those are sort of signs that, hey, these guys don't have that natural sense for where that hole is. And certain guys have it, certain guys don't. And I don't think it's a teachable trait. Yeah, I think it's one of those things that you really, it's one of those things that I think it ha- if it's teachable, it has to come very early in your development. Like it's got to be like, you you have to have a really good coach like in elementary school and middle school and early exactly. high school who's like emphasizing footwork to such a degree that you understand how to, to really adjust your feet in coordination with what you see at the line of scrimmage. Like you have to get into the studying that early enough that it becomes ingrained technique. And there are guys who develop their feet better. Like I've seen guys get better at that. Like Kenyon Drake got better at it. I think that, you know, he's an example of that. But then you see other guys who it's very hard to maybe for them to unlearn and you have to get the right teaching. And that's, there's so many guys out here who are footwork coaches and do all the, and offer all this kind of stuff. And some of that can be really valuable, but it depends on the player and what, where their development is and whether that coach actually can identify that with the player and whether they get the right combination of guy who's, you know, getting the lessons he needs. Because you can learn different types of footwork, but if it doesn't apply to what's going on on the field, then you've just spent a lot of money and done a lot of extra work that's not going in the right direction. Well, also, because I think a lot of those coaches, they're, they're, the bulk of them are guys that train guys on how to test well, on how to run faster. That doesn't correlate to proper footwork to make the appropriate cut, to understand how to avoid certain traffic. Those are things that come from position coaches who understand the nuances of the position and how to train a player to play better, not run faster, not jump higher. And I think there's a separation and it needs to be there because those coaches that can teach the testing have a value, a huge value. Sure. But it's not for training you how to play running back. If it's for training you how to test better, maybe get in better shape. Right. But that's not going to teach you how to follow your blockers, use the appropriate footwork to cut off their block or to bounce around their block, different things yeah. like that. That's the position coach. And those guys can do remarkable things with the technique as opposed to teaching you how to run fast. Yeah. And if I were to make a suggestion to somebody who was like a young college player or a high school player, if they were listening to this, is like, yeah, seek out a position coach, but also if you're going to work with, if you have the opportunity to work with some of these footwork guys who actually do like scenarios where it's based on football, like on the field. That's like, the key. You know, if you can do that, that's great. But I'd even see if you can get those two parties to meet up so that they can provide, your coach can provide an assignment to your footwork consultant to say, this is what you need to work on. Like, you know, that you know, gap plays. You need to learn how to um, get past your down block sooner, but you need to be able to read the key of the linebacker, or the safety, or the force player on the outside and understand when how those guys interact, how you adjust your feet. Or how do you deal with penetration? Like, you know, a guy like David Montgomery got a lot better this year because he did in college, one of the things that he didn't understand how to do, he was a jump cut guy. Like he's he loves the jump cut and he's exciting to watch. But he Which free- I get because yeah. it's a fun thing as a back because you literally are literally boom and you're somewhere else and you're free of contact. Yeah. So I get the loving of it. It makes sense. Yes. But when you're but when you're taking a when you're taking the exchange and there's penetration and you see the penetration coming up the middle or to the side that you're heading towards, their first reaction oftentimes, and this was Kenyon Drake's to a fault, is he would t- make a jump stop, but he would jump a yard and a half forward 
and like hit his head literally on the backside of his blocker and knock himself down rather than just doing what, say, an Arian Foster taught so well, you could see him do it, is that he would literally just open up his hips. He'd point his toe towards the sideline, his hips open up, and he doesn't even have to take an extra step. He's literally outside of the defender and sliding across him. Chubb does that really well too in the hole. He does that really well. But those types of things are things that guys can learn and get better at. Um, and it's just uh, that efficiency of footwork. But anyway, I'd love to know, like, who are some of your guys that you're just like, what you learned from them from the experience of evaluation? Well, you know, one of the big ones was John Dwyer, the running oh. back out of Georgia Tech. Um, this is a kid, I mean, when I watched him, I saw a violent runner. I saw a kid that could keep his feet versus contact. Um, I thought that this was also a kid I thought, and this was, I think, the thing I missed on the most, I thought he had good instincts. I thought he could feel it, could cut off what he saw, and I thought he had a little more juice. And part of that, in my mistake going back and watching him, is that offense, was, he played the fullback role in the, in the Georgia Tech sort of wishbone, whatever you want to call it, option offense. Yeah where there really wasn't much to read. It was we're, it, when the quarterback is leaving you with the ball, he's leaving it with you because there's a hole. He's not leaving it with you because he thinks you're so dynamic. So when he got the ball, there was a hole already there. And I did a bad job of identifying that that was the case with him. And I thought he was picking the correct hole as opposed to the quarterback was deciding that the hole looked good. I'm going to let you keep the ball. And yeah. I really missed on that. And because the hole was there and the quarterback was making that decision for him and he didn't have to think about it, he was instantly accelerating. So that hid the fact that I don't think he had the gear to accelerate fast from a normal position because he was already in the position of knowing that's where he's going. And then when he got to the Steelers and I spoke to my buddy who worked there, he said, Russ, he said, He's got the inside running skills in terms of run through contact. He says he has very good balance. He can do those things, but he said he isn't quick twitch. And he said, if there's not a, a gap there, he said, he just doesn't know where to go. And that's one of the issues. Now he had one year where he ran pretty well, got a bunch of carrots for the Steelers and did some good things. But he said, every, my buddy there told me everything had to be set up for. Him. It wasn't a spot where he could sift through, find a space and hit it just wasn't there. So he was one of the ones that really disappointed me. I really thought he was going to be a freak. Um, and clearly, not only was he not a freak, he wasn't even a good back. He was just a guy that bounced around for a few years and was out of the league. Yeah, that's a great example. And it's and I love the point about that the quarterback's got in the hole. That he's he was the he was the eyes for the back, you know? Exactly. That and understanding how that scheme works it makes a big difference. And I think that's a, that's such a huge lesson for all of us to learn is that is that sometimes it can really be scheme oriented both in a positive or negative for the back where you, you know either the back's not getting the, you're not seeing the best from him because maybe he's in a position where he's not being able to use the full level of his creativity like a good example would be that type of a scheme where it's like directed for you for where it is yep. where, or a scheme where maybe you're playing side saddle of the quarterback in pistol or in or in shotgun and you're a type of back that would be better having essentially multiple choices to be able to cut back because you're that creative but because the quarterback's cutting off half the line of scrimmage based on the exchange point you, you know defenses can play to that and you're and basically sort of limited. being limited yeah 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 it, it makes it so people that's one of the things i think that took me a long time was you can't just grade a running back's athleticism and figure out his vision there's so many factors that go into it and you have to look at all the nuanced little things in order to have a feel for if a guy's going to make it. And I think one of the other things just to throw in here that I hear people talk about all the time is, well, we you have to give this guy a break. His offense line is bad and whatever it may be. And they, they, they don't realize that there is no back ever that was productive behind a bad offensive line. They all need some blocking to get a hole. Yeah. None of them can do it without holes. Yeah. They can't just run and find space on their own. And when a team has a terrible offensive line in college, it can make the process hard. Yes. Because so many of the snaps are basically eliminated from the evaluation process because he's not getting a chance 
to look and find a place to run because he's basically just running for his life. Yeah, that's a great point. And it's one of those things that you have to, you have to, and I, I would argue that that's also why when a player faces great competition and their team is overwhelmed, that you don't want to overly negate that player saying, well, when they faced good teams, they were bad. Well, yeah, you know, you've got to be, you know, there's got, there are some things you can separate, but you're right. There's a lot of snaps of things that, that make it harder. I mean, you know, it's, if you were watching Matt Forte against LSU, like every week, you know, that was a lot harder of an evaluation to do, you know, considering that his offensive line, you know, couldn't, out bench press any player on that team, exactly. Uh, you, you know, and he's a guy that's averaging you know less than one yard, one, one less than two yards a carry against the Dorseys of that, you know, of of the LSU's, and you know, even then you could see things that he did creatively, what he could do as a pass catcher, what he did in terms of contact, balance, strength, and power, but complete decision making can't see because he's had his plan's been altered yeah and, exactly and, and when it comes to vision i think a great example of a guy with vision is or that we look at guys and maybe go the opposite route like i often went the opposite route with my heirs which was i started to appreciate guys with vision who may not have special athletic skills but i thought that maybe they could transcend that with their vision think it's kind of the priest Holmes effect of looking at things. So who would be the next priest Holmes that I could be looking for, <laughs> you know? And I think the guy that was certainly on that list that I really liked more than he had one really strong season. And then he had a really unfortunate um, illness. Um, I think he had a brain tumor and that was Jerome Harrison. Um, you know, who, when I watched him, I really liked his decision-making. I thought he was very instinctive. I thought that he had some decent after-contact balance for his size, but that's the key point for his size. You have to realize to a point that there are players that if, you know, Dan Reeves were coaching still, or, or, you know, I'm trying to th think of any former 1950s, 60s, early Leave 70s player. Yeah. Any play, insert any player who's who played in that era, who's now who was then a coach. If you insert them, they'd say, "Yeah, I don't care if he weighs 135 pounds; he can run. We're going to run him into the ground. We'll find somebody else." You, you know, there aren't that many guys like that. So, because I grew up watching coaches like that, it was in my mindset that I thought, "Well, if he gets his chance, they're going to, you know, they're going to see how good he is, and he'll prove that his size isn't a big deal." And maybe I can call that Walter Payton syndrome too. Like that, <laughs> yeah, no doubt, that, right? that was getting a case of Walter Payton syndrome and thinking that that Walter Payton, you know, realizing that Walter, forgetting that you loved Walter Payton, but you or remembering you loved him, but forgetting that he was how special he really was to play at the size he did and with the ferocity that he did for the career length that he had with the touches that went on there. I mean, that's a that's it's a superhuman, yeah, superhuman being. So it's like. I can't look at him and go, well, what I have to do is look at that and go, okay, Warwick Dunn. Warwick Dunn was a terrific running back. Warwick Dunn proved it with Dan Reeves that if you put him in the right system, that for a year you can feed him the ball and he could be pretty darn good for you. But they're going to be looking for another back after that year. Yeah. They don't want well, him I mean, doing that the, year after year. The old saying that I, I constantly heard was, even the, when you find a back, that makes it that small is this is still a big human being game. Yes. These are gigantic human beings. They're not natural. They're giant. They're rare exceptions. So even if you find a guy and a Joe Morris is probably the best I can remember of yeah. a tiny little guy who was really productive. You really either have to accept that that career is going to be really short because they are just going to get broken or yeah. you're going to have to use them a different way. Yeah. You're not going to overload them with, 30 touches a game. You're going to say, hey, if Darren Sproles, and I love Sproles, he was one of the great players of that I can remember just mm -hmm. watching. Yeah. But if a team had said stubbornly, yeah, he's super tough, he runs hard with the ball, we're going to give him 25 touches a game, Darren probably would have played a year or yeah. two in the NFL. Yeah. But you can't do that. And I think that your point is great is Harrison was a very interesting player, but I think he just didn't frame-wise, he wasn't going to survive long-term because he didn't have the skill set to be dynamic in all areas in terms of athletic skill set, 
but his frame wouldn't allow him to be the power back. So he's sort of trapped in two worlds. And where do those guys fit? Yeah. And the, and then the, the, the opposite end of the same sort of player, but he had that, that compensatory factor that lengthened his career and made him a 2,000-yard rusher was Chris Johnson. Chris Johnson had the uh, amazing speed and, and, and quickness. He was a sudden player who also could run zone and gap, and he could, he could work through contact. And, but he, it was a combination of so many things because I think, one, he was a player I'll add, I, under, I misevaluated how good he could be, but I'll also, I, I will also contend that he wound up in a perfect system with Tennessee oh, no doubt. with the road grading block blocking and for his and the creases that he was going to get. But what I underestimated about him was his level of vision. Um, and I was still, I think at that point still, you know, what was this 2008 probably when he came out? Yeah. 2008. I was still just starting to scratch the surface of the differences in, in schemes and, and how that really affects how a player plays and understanding style of play in terms of big back versus little back and how a little back can have some big back qualities that work out well for them as long as they have that, you know, that huge factor, that like game breaking factor in their in their arsenal that can mitigate some of the issues that they might have otherwise. Yeah, and I think what also I remember grading him because one of the guys that was working with me, Mark Lillibridge, who we all know well now, yeah. he was one. He gave me a huge grade. He said, "Rush, you need to look at this guy." And I looked at him and I was like, "Yeah, I get it." But one of the things that to me made Johnson so interesting is you get a lot of guys who are explosive and dynamic speed wise, and then you get other guys who are willing to run in traffic. And when you find the guy who can do both, it's great. But the thing that you have to have if you're explosive and dynamic and you're going to be productive running in traffic is you have to have the ability in close quarters to get skinny, to avoid guys and to do things in narrow areas. Bradley or Bradley, uh, Nick Chubb is an example of a guy that in close quarters, he can sidestep, he can move, he can swipe guys away. Chris Johnson was able to get skinny, even though he was primarily a hit it and go guy. Once he had it, if there was a guy there, he could slip it. And he could take that hit to the knees in the hole and still get through the hole. That is a rare skill, that ability in close quarters to get away from guys and not slow up to the point of stopping, which a lot of guys try to do. They stop and then try to, you do that, it's over anyway. That's where Chris Johnson was unique was he could do these things at almost full speed. And then once that sliver of space opened, because he got by you, it was over. Yeah. And Chris was very unique guy. He was, uh, Watching him play was so much fun because he had such a combination of running like it's the world is over, sort of like Kareem Hunt, like I'm going to do everything it takes. And at other times, he would just be floating on the edge waiting for that crease. And when it hit, he would just shoot through it like a shotgun. Yeah. And I think there were guys that when you talk about their ability to play bigger than their size, uh, two other guys that come to mind within that same era – were LaShawn McCoy and Jamal Charles. And like those were guys that when you watched them, the two things that they did well, especially Charles, Charles was an initiator of contact. Like the the best backs, and this isn't, I can't tell you who I learned this from from a mistake, but I do remember learning it watching Charles and why I valued him was he was the type of guy that I, he was the first guy I saw that it registered in my mind that I thought, okay, if you hit the defender first, you can control the interaction. So if you're the aggressor, you could be 185, 195, and you can deliver the forearm to the chest of a defensive tackle if you're at the correct angle and spin off that, and he's never going to grab you because he's reacting to your contact first, and now you're moving away as he makes the wrap. And if you can, if you have the quickness, awareness, and 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 understanding of angles to do that, you're you're going to be good in the NFL. Yeah, you know, and those. Well, go ahead. And I'll just add, you mentioned that when I first got in the league, and I was working for the Rams, and I would look at the height weight of all the starting tailbacks. I kept asking my mentor, who'd been in the business basically since water got invented. <laughs> um, I kept saying, "How are these guys all 200, 210, 215? How is Walter?" 
so good. And he was 185, 190, and he was five foot ten. He said, Russ, he said, let me get it. And he went and pulled in. At this time, Betamax was what we used. And he put it in. And he goes, every single time, Walter was the hitter. And he said, as a back, he said, it doesn't mean you're going to break the tackle. But he said, it means you're the initial. You're dictating the play. Yeah. Just like when an offensive lineman doesn't use his hands, it lets the pass rusher dictate because he gives up his chest. When a running back attacks and hits first, he dictates it. So the tackler may not get in the proper position because the back is hitting him first. Yes. So he's going to be able to do all the things he wants. It lets him play bigger, and it makes the tackle smaller. Yes. And that was a thing that Jack taught me when I first got in, and it always stayed in my head is those guys that initiate. And that's why, to me, guys like Dickerson and Eddie George are so rare because they were so upright they never did initiate. They were just so huge, superhuman that they would run with that upper body almost like an ironing board in their back, and they still were great, but they never initiated. Yeah, And, and that's why it's so – when you find a guy who does, that's why I love that kid even though he never made it, the little kid from Michigan, um, Mike Hart. Oh, yeah. I mean, he attacked people. He would deliver that blow, but he was just too little. Yeah. He just couldn't survive the, the NFL, but he had that mentality. And the same, uh, same player probably – that's probably where it, I, I can identify the player actually to where it's seeing the difference now because it was Jamal Charles who I remember seeing and, and the player in contrast who I also liked, but as a sleeper in that same year who took a lot of contact and kept going, but I loved the effort and the second effort in him. And I thought he was quick enough, but he didn't have that attack. He was he was more of a reactor than an attacker. Was Xavier Oman? You remember Ooh, Xavier I, Oman? I went and scouted him at Northwest Missouri. Yeah, yeah. He was a big, thick body. I mean, you loved how he looked and how he ran. Yeah. But he was never the guy who would put that shoulder and hit first. He was always the absorber of contact. Yes. And he would run through the contact. Yeah. But the difference is when you get to the NFL, not many guys can run through it. Yes. When it's being Voiced on them. That's why the guys like Dickerson and Eddie George are so rare because they did it. Yeah. Most guys who try to do that, they're broken. Yeah. And out of the game pretty quickly. Exactly. And so, and I think that was the difference for me was the juxtaposition of like really liking Oman as a sleeper and looking at Charles and going, this is the bored kid in like, in like algebra class who's getting C minuses at Texas right now compared to what he should be. But when you ask him why he's not doing the work he should, he's he said he got preoccupied overnight studying an advanced physics equation, you know, and he was trying to do an experiment, a physics experiment in his basement. And you're like, okay, this kid just has to figure out, like somebody yeah. needs to give him focus. And once he does, this guy's good. Watch out, he's going to be great. So that that was a good example of a guy like that. Um, that certainly the that the juxtaposition of those two players in terms of attacking versus absorbing. Yeah, you know? and I'll tell you, because it, it, and, and, I, I agree, that's 100%. The attacking guys generally, in my opinion, are better. But I'll tell you what, to me, to this day, the guy that I view as my biggest miss, and right. I think it's a lot of people's biggest misses, is Trent Richardson. Oh, because for sure. I remember watching him in Alabama, and I watched tons of film. Because I would watch one game and say, he looks so good, it can't be this good. And I'd watch another game. And I had that same feeling. I must have watched eight or nine of his games from his final season. And I thought, either I'm seeing things because I thought he was so good, or this guy is a rock star. So, and I mentioned to you before we came on the air, I called a lot of people, but I spoke specifically to 15 guys in the NFL. And I said, what's your grade? Where do you view Richardson? Because I said, I think he's the best I've ever graded. I said, I'm giving him a top of the draft one of the top three players in the whole draft. I love this kid. I think he's powerful. I think he's instinctive. I think he can run through contact. I think he has good enough hands to be a part of the passing attack. I said, what is it? So 14 of the 15 not only agreed that they loved him as a first-round pick, they all said, yes, he's the best I've ever graded also. Wow. And these are all guys that are still in the league, still some of them very high up with teams. This guy was a special player at Alabama. But to add, to sort of add to the mix, one guy of that 15 said, not only do I not like him, I don't think he's a draftable player. 
because I don't think he can even be a starting running back in the NFL. And to, it amazes me that he saw that. But that, to me, when I look back now, and, and for me, the best way to look back at a guy like him is I try to look at all the guys that have come through that program and try to figure out which ones made it, which ones didn't. And not a lot of them have become stars. Ingram's been a solid player. It, he is sort of what he is. Henry obviously is special. Um, but Richardson, when I look back and I think, geez, I don't know why I thought he had natural instincts. Because part of the issue is their line is so dominant that it's not a matter of figuring out what hole. It's just picking whatever hole he's in the mood for. Because they usually have two or three gaping huge holes. And that was one of the big things I missed was that. And the fact that he, the work ethic when he got to the NFL was not the same as it was in college. But that's something that you wouldn't know being on the outside and just grading the film. Yeah, and I think that's a great point about why understanding the blocking scheme and being sometimes maybe being strict to the idea of going, what was the optimal choice here? What is what would Huge. what would you be reading? Like what keys should you be reading on this play? Like when he like I oftentimes what I've learned for me at least that's been helpful is when I watch a running play, I watch it all the way through once, and then I freeze the play pre-snap to see what the what the front seven looks like. And then I and then I run it until just before the snap, just as the ball is being moved, and see if anything's changed, and see if the back is even looking, like yep. whether they've been able to look or notice. And sometimes you can't tell whether they have until you've actually gone through the play. But what they should be doing is from the time the ball snapped, or from the time before the ball snapped until they take the ball through the exchange. I'm looking to see if they're reacting to anything that's going on there and you'll see it 100%. Through, yeah you'll see it through their feet like their feet will tell you whether or not they see the the unblocked linebacker heading through the gap that there's that they want to go through or whether like i like sunday night good example i'm watching pre-snap of the 30-yard touchdown aj dillon ran on the cutback and i'm watching the motion and i'm seeing the shift of the linebackers i'm going there's a cutback off the right side like i'm sitting here watching this and thinking if if i wonder if he'll see this i'm wondering if he, like to me i'm seeing this and i know yeah. i'm i'm thinking he's gonna he's gotta cut this back and sure enough the feet were there he made the nice little adjustment, cut back, bounced it to the right side, and he was gone in the snow. So it was like there's things like that that you start to see. And as a running back, you you need to be able to understand how to adjust your feet. Are you adjusting your stride length? Are you are you pressing towards the defender to continue to get bait him into the direction that he naturally is trying to go anyway? And then setting up the bounce or cutback as a result of that. Do you have the economy of steps to do it? Do you alter your pacing? But all those things come into order in terms of how you're processing what happens in front of you. And part of it too is down and distance situation. Like understanding that on fourth and one or third and three, it's more important to follow the the integrity of the play if you know you can get those yards with some effort as opposed to trying to go for the home run play that could cost you seven yards in Which the is backfield. Which a hard lesson to learn. Or yes. to teach certain running backs. They never, some running backs can never learn that, hey, certain situations, you just have to put your head down. And even if you're running into your own block, yeah, you got to just get one yard. Yeah, We're not talking about getting 30 or 40 or 50. You just need one to keep the drive alive. Yeah. Certain guys never learn that. Yeah. And They're this always and this was the reason why I like Chubb over Saquon Barkley because Chubb was the type of runner that I knew was like he understood the situation. Whereas, and I love Barkley. Barkley was a fantastic prospect. No yes, freak talent. We know this. But the difference was okay. If it's going to come down to do I want the mature player or the guy that I know that is going to with his freak talent can get away with the things that Darren McFadden couldn't, which is stop in the middle of the crease, ask for directions. And, exactly. you know, and, you know, maybe get some, you know, you know, boiled peanuts on the way to wherever he's going to go. It, you know, he can get away with that sometimes in the NFL, not as often. But, exactly. you know, again, and that is just an example of there are guys that we overestimate sometimes the athletic ability, like you said. So as a result of that, you want to see whether they can read and they can make those types of decisions. And I think that where I've 
failed more often in terms of maybe overvaluing guys. Guys like Peyton Barber would be a good example. Is that I find, and I'm fine with that now. Like in hindsight, I kind of like this, but it's like I've learned to go, okay, there's guys I like who may not have special athletic ability. They're going to play in the NFL. They're going to contribute. They're going to be on a reserve roster. If they get put into the game, they're going to produce if the blocking's pretty good. They're going to make smart decisions. They're going to have five to seven year careers, maybe even 10 if they stay healthy. And 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 you're going to appreciate them as players. But not as guys that I'm going to rate and say, this guy's got a better shot to be a starter than this guy who's who has the chance to learn marginally a little bit more. You know, you may be marginally less... Um, intuitive or conceptually sound or technically sound, but can grow beyond that. Like a Kenyon Drake versus a Peyton Barber. Like I would have graded Peyton Barber over Kenyon Drake. Me too. You know, but at the same time, you know, if they're, if you think two players are like in this range and you know, one's not, it doesn't have the ceiling to get any better. Yeah. I can understand why you go for the upside with guys. Cause like Kenyon, you know, Peyton Barber's Spencer Ware. Spencer Ware was like, he's one of my absolute yep. favorite backs because he's that tough, smart. Spencer Ware is Nick Chubb without speed. Like that's basically, that was like, that was my, that was a guy that I went completely nuts over as a player. And so I think when I look back and I think, uh, think of that is like, what I learned from Spencer Ware was that he didn't have the compensatory factors to really be a top starter, though he had the well-rounded game, he had the, to be a perfect backup. To be yes, exactly. So there's there's that balance. Yep, and and I'll say the thing that I think where it's and this is just from years and years of hearing it sort of screamed into my head, which is there are a lot of guys who can be good in college that have a lot of the mental traits to be good in the pros, but it still takes a certain amount of talent yeah if it was and they, this is what's always told to me especially when we talk because i talk quarterbacks all the time is it's great to find the guy who can check all the boxes mentally you still have to be able to throw the ball yeah. you still have to be able to do certain things and they always say russ if it's just about being a good guy who's smart you'd be playing quarterback but you need <laughs> a certain skill right. level and that's when i look at running back because in college the holes are so big that sometimes you you're almost and i do this a lot is you almost downgrade the athletic but eh, this guy's good enough to make it well good enough really isn't going to be a starter yeah good enough you you need the guy who's got a little bit of that natural talent to do things now a peyton barber i still think could be a solid starter but thing is you're always going to be looking to upgrade yeah because he's going to hold you back from the big plays here and there from being able to turn a three-yard gain into an 80-yard touchdown right um but that to me is the, the the hard part of it is where is that line athletically? Yeah. Which guys are just over it and which guys are just below it to be able to translate those mental traits and, and technique traits to allow them to become starters or are they trapped in that backup body? Yeah, I love that. I love it. And I think that that's, I think, and it's part of that too is um, it's, uh, I saw this as a common mistake with other people's stuff. Like I've, I've done this in the past with other players, but this guy I didn't like, but I can understand like the reason why people liked him was Devonte Booker. Like Devonte Booker was a guy that I think a lot of people saw him at Utah and they saw him hit creases so decisively that they thought he was anticipating the crease that he was like, that he had great vision and that he understood when the crease was going to hit. And then when he went to Denver and they even changed the blocking scheme to to complement what he does well, and he still had difficulties. You realize that you, you know if you hadn't seen it before, you realize that this was a guy who was guessing, like he was running with his eyes closed a lot of times in terms of what he did. So I'm trying to think of guys like that for me, but I remember that was a guy that I remember watching and going, "Okay, I've learned the difference between these two in in these instances." I think figuring out instincts can be hard. Yeah. It really can, especially at the bigger programs, because the teams that are so well coached on that offensive line that the back knows exactly where the holes are going to be. The coaching is so perfect that even if a guy doesn't make his block, he's often in position to keep his man from affecting the hole. So that to me, instincts can be very hard. Um, and the other thing to me that's impossible to predict 
I mean, you the medical people can, but the injury factor. Yeah. Because that's another one of my big misses is the Ryan Williams kid out of Virginia Tech. If I remember oh, correct, it was God, Virginia Tech. Him. Yeah, it was Virginia Tech. Yep. I remember player. watching him, and I thought he was going to be just a superstar. He was just, you watch him. And, and truthfully, another guy came out of the same school, what, five years later? David, David Wilson, Wilson. Another guy I thought was going to be I'm going to talk about him. So, and yeah. both of these guys, and Williams to me, I remember watching him in college. And, man, his explosiveness, his balance, his ability to lower his pad level, run through, not tackles, but like we talked about, hits, where guys would throw their bodies in the way. He could run through that. He was natural catching the ball out of the backfield. And I think he had one year in the NFL where he looked like, okay, this is going to be the guy. He had a game. Or maybe it was a game. He had, that a, might game. Have been. <laughs> he had a game. Yeah. And then literally it was just – and he had been dinged up in college. Yeah. He had missed a number of games, and his body, he just broke. Yeah. And to this day, that's one of my – because I think it was a high second rounder, and I loved him. I really thought he was going to be a freak guy in the NFL – Mr. Versatile, do everything. A guy who would run for 1,200, catch 700 yards, even be able to help on kick return. And he was literally in and out of the NFL. It was over in a heartbeat. Well, um, Jonathan Stewart was that for me because the injury, I thought, I was like, Jonathan Stewart is like Emmett Smith in a big body. Like, I've never seen such a freak show of a back at Oregon, but... But the the when you talk about um, Williams and the Wilson kid, David Wilson, this is a good point I want to bring up is, and I want to ask you about is about ball security, because like I feel like I'm ready to. There was a point where I felt like I underestimated it with Wilson. It's like ah yeah, you know he fumbles, but he'll shore that up. They can shore that up. And then he got with Tom Coughlin, and Coughlin was very much hardliner about it, as opposed to say Adrian Peterson who fumbled 20 times in two seasons. And while, yeah, they put him on the bench for a bit, you know, during a game to say, hey, now, you know, yeah, time out, got to control that. Then they insert him back in the lineup, you know, and he, and he was, you know, continued to work through all that. But, you know, a guy like Wilson didn't have that kind of coach. He had a different style of coach who was like, no, you're going to learn the hard way. And and then the injury is as well. But I feel like now I'm too hard on backs after that experience. Because now I see guys like Kamara, who's like fixed it. Sony Michelle, who's when he's on the field, he's fixed it. There are um, uh, there's a few guys that like that I've I feel like that I've rated their I've been too um, hard on them, too hard on them because of the fact that they they lose a football. So like one of the things that I try to do is is use like a ratio of like you know fumble rates that I use to kind of yep. grade on a sliding scale and say, here's how I tier them, and then look at technique as a combination of that. Um, but it's hard because some guys have really good technique, and no matter what they do, it's in their heads. Like Stevon Ridley, it got into his head, and he and went once from- it's in there, it's hard. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And see, what scares me with Wilson, forgetting the injury part, is uh, Coughlin took Tiki Barber who was a fumbling machine. And Coughlin was sort of a fundamentals guy. Yeah. He taught Tiki exactly, hey, you're going to stop fumbling, and this is how. And he did. So if he couldn't resolve David's problem, it probably wasn't resolvable. Right. Now, when I look at running backs, if I notice there's an issue, what I try to do is I'll try to go through any time. And I'm sort of a stickler is, even if they hit the ground, if that ball comes out when they hit, that to me is a fumble because you never know what it's going to get called in the NFL. So, right. so if a guy starts fumbling, I start watching every single time the ball leaves him. What was he doing? Was it he was being careless? Was he doing things right? And if I can chart it and figure out, hey, you know what? Most of the time it was carelessness. Okay, I feel I can fix that. But if he's doing it correctly, that's what scares me because then it points to he may just not have that strength in his hand and arm yeah. to be able to fight off when guys attack it. Yeah. So when I look at a guy that's careless and he fumbles a bunch, but when he does it right, he never does, that lends me to believe, okay, we just have to basically force this person to become more attention to detail, which that's also where you have to talk to the coaches in college because maybe they've been trying. Yeah. And if he doesn't care in college, he's probably not going to care in the NFL. Right. But if they've never even spoken to him about it, then you have a good chance of at least being able to rein that in. Yeah. But I, th- I will tell you, there are a lot of people in the NFL that feel if you carry the ball correctly and you fumble, it is not fixable. 
There are a lot of people that feel that is an unfixable trait. I don't know if I agree that it's unfixable, but I will say if your technique is not bad and you're still a fumbler, it ain't easy. Yeah. That's for sure. And Just I, like fixing accuracy with a quarterback who has good mechanics. I think that's a great point. And I and it makes sense because and I think that's why I still like looking at rates and technique as a one. Because it's important. yeah, because if you look at the rate and you're like you know, look at LaShawn McCoy who carries it like a loaf of bread and, 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 or, or I joke like a, or he's carrying it like a mama holding the baby away from a smoking building, you, you yep. know, as she's bursting out of the door, you know, with the flames behind her, you, you know, he, if his fumble rate is small, then what's the big deal? He's going to shore this up most likely, you know, cause he's yep. taken enough hits. He's, he knows when to cinch it up when he sees it. And yeah, he's going to occasional careless fumble. Fine. Or if it's like you're a big, strong, tackle-breaking machine and the only time you tend to fumble is when you're making the fifth effort on a play that you just need to give it up, I'm okay with that. But yeah, you're because right. because that's, that's a coachable thing. Yeah. You can teach them, hey, there gets to a point where when guys start getting around you, you just got to go. Yeah, go down. Because they're all gonna they're all sharpshooters. They're all going to be going for the ball rather than you because – but if you're, but you're right. But if you're high and tight, the elbows cinched to the side, you know, which is the the thing that I never see. Like very rarely do you see a back, you know, like the Tom Coughlin teaching with the the ball up at the chest, the elbow to the side. Most guys have the ball near the chest, the elbows out, you know, fine. But if they can take they if they're carrying like that, at the very least with the elbow out a little bit, they're high up and they're still fumbling a lot. Yeah, I can get. I can see how that's an issue. That's a great that's a great yep. point. And I will tell you the one thing I was taught early also was you the guys who carry it correctly and then whenever the traffic starts getting tight they instantly slam that other arm on top of it. That tells you yeah, he's probably not an after contact guy who's going to break tackles or whatever, but they said that's usually a guy who's never going to put on the ground yes. because they've been trained since they were four that the moment the traffic is there, they're becoming a two-arm guy because you can't pull the inside arm away if the outside arm is trapping it against the body. So, yeah, and don't get me wrong, you don't want to give up those yards, but at the same time, how many times do you really break a tackle? Maybe you, like we talked about, you may fall forward, but you're not going to break the tackle. So if you got to trap that ball when you're in traffic, just trap it up, go to the ground. We all know, despite all the analytics and all the people wanting to put all their computers, there's still one thing above all that determines winning and losing, and that's turnovers. You can run all the stats you want, all this and that. It's still turnovers. So give up the extra yards, put the second hand on, and go down. And when I see guys who do that, I feel comfortable saying, that guy, at least I know, the ball ain't coming out. Yeah, it's a great point. And if you're one of those ironing board backs, when you when you do trap it up with that second arm, your pad might hammer down on somebody and you might break a yeah. tackle. So yeah. there you I go. I mean, Dickerson was a fumbler. <laughs> I mean, he led the league, I think, almost every year he was in the league. Yeah. But the problem was, because he would score 60-yard touchdowns every other week, you were like, yeah, we'll trade the, the one fumble for this the 60-yard touchdown because it's it's points on the board. Yeah. We're but up- if, you fumble, if you lead the league in fumbles, you will not play seven or eight years as a starter anymore. Absolutely, absolutely. Were there any other players that you had in mind, or did we cover the? Those gamut? were the three big misses I've been able to find. There were a few. Yeah, those were really the three guys that stood out as just oh, John Dwyer to me is the biggest one ever because nobody was talking about him as a stud. I really thought, hey, I've got I figured out something that everybody else is missing, and that's why I gave this guy a first round grade. He goes in the sixth round. He lasts about a year or two, and then he's done with football. And to this yeah. day. That one drives me bonkers that I completely swung a miss on that one. Hey, listen, you know, we all have them. That's something we certainly understand when we go through this. Um, you know, I think of, I can only, the guy that I just look at and I just blink my eyes and go, how did I miss it is, is Kamara. I just, every time I watch Kamara, I'm just like, wow. Like there's a guy in that same class who I liked, but could see that it was like, there was some nuance to how his game was going to go. And that's Samaj AP Ryan. Like he was a guy that I, I could see how there could be a better version of him maybe on the field, but, but it, but it wasn't like straightforward. So like, while I rate it up as a miss, I don't look at it as one where I'm like, Oh, that was just, that yeah. was just awful, <laughs> you know, but like, but Kamara, I watch him and I'm just in awe of watching him play. And I just look at that and I go, what the heck did I not see with that? Well, I guess that raises the other question. Would you rather be wrong on a guy that you have a high grade on and watches out so you don't have to see him play all the time? 
or be wrong on a guy that you gave a low grade to who ends up becoming a star, and then he compounded into you every single year how much you miss. At least when they're out of the league, you can sort of forget it. Like John you're, you're Dwyer, right. I had about in five years until we thought about doing this show. You're right, but I'll end it on this note, and I'll use it as a positive. I'll answer that, and I'll say, I'll say I'd rather have the guy pounded into my brain for years to come because I can draft an Alvin Kamara in my fantasy league and he can score six touchdowns and win me money, which was something that did that, that, (laughs) that happened, that happened this year in a league with our, our mutual friend, Ryan Riddle, that he invited me in a league in. And I, and I decided after a year, it was year two, I traded to, to draft him or it was the year that he was, I think it was the year that he came out and I just decided to hedge my bets. And I decided, you know what? I'm the, I'm gonna trade I'm gonna trade for this guy and I traded Miles Jack away to get Alvin Kamara and a shot at Cooper Cup and I got those go. two guys and I had Mahomes on this team so I finally won a championship and I won some money out of it so I'll say I'll say on that end you know there's the nice living of actually having a toe in fantasy football is that you can take your mistakes and yeah, go exactly. you know what I'll, I'll, fantasy football that'd be a different story. Yeah, exactly if i'm actually you know from the standpoint of being a you know of being an evaluator of the game <laughs> it, you know i still watch him and i go six touchdowns and yeah I, yeah. I, yeah at least well you know that softens at least the blow a little bit you know I'll buy him a drink if I ever see him in Norcross because that's where he went to school is in Norcross High School, which is hop, skip, and a jump away from where, from where I live. So, but um, on that note, listen, you know, it's always a pleasure getting a chance to chop this up here with Russ, and and we're gonna continue this series with a look at tight ends and of course the quarterback position, where I think both positions are rich with opportunities for us to talk about where we failed, what we've learned, um, you know, where we've had some small slivers of success, but things that are translatable to anybody who's, you know, wanting to watch the game and learn a little bit more about evaluating the position and the difficulties that it offers. But um, listen, you can find Russ Landy at Russ Landy on Twitter. You can find me at Matt Waldman. And uh, we look forward to doing, you know, more of these as the uh, draft season unfolds. And we'll certainly talk, start talking about 2021 prospects as well.